So wholesaling is, you know, the easiest way for people to get into real estate. You can do it with basically no money. There are a ton of wholesale deals happening, at least here, I'm sure in other markets too. It is a good way to buy properties. You don't have to do the legwork of finding that seller. And by the way, we do wholesale some properties, not a lot, but, but some. And But that's how a lot of investors are running their business. They're, they're primarily wholesaling. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Xander Cruz, and today we're talking about key skills, knowledge, tactics, strategies for turnkey real estate investors to know. If you're looking at investing in turnkey property, you have to know so much of this knowledge to protect yourself, protect your investment, and make sure that you're making the right moves, you're getting into good assets. And Xander shares a lot of great knowledge today from his experience as a, a turnkey provider and also from his background, fixing and flipping and doing so much more in real estate. You know, people get have been burned by bad, you know, real estate deals in any realm in the past, right? And and one of the best ways to protect yourself from getting burned in, in any deal is to know how to do due diligence and have knowledge going in of, of what you're getting into, how to protect yourself, right? And Xander shares a lot of great knowledge today, specifically for turnkey real estate investors to uh, make good decisions. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate, specifically in apartment building and self-storage syndications. If you're interested in learning more and potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call with me. I will look forward to speaking with you then. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. That's when we're here. That's when we're doing it. And I'm glad you joined us today to learn some lessons about turnkey real estate investing. Without any further ado, here we go. Xander, thank you for joining us today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. It's been a great conversation so far. And I think we're going to learn a lot of skills and knowledge here around turnkey real estate investing. And for our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us a bit about what you do, where you are, and how you help people invest in real estate? Sure. So my name is Xander. I'm born and raised here in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, which is where our business is based and ran. Our business is CR of Maryland. Uh, we are primarily a turnkey real estate provider. I have been doing this now for about nine years. My partner has been doing it since 2004. We were historically a fix and flip company. Uh, then we evolved into uh, building a rental portfolio, about 300 properties in Baltimore. And then after that, we evolved again into becoming a, a turnkey provider. So that's a really long story short, but we provide single family turnkey properties in Baltimore that we renovate, uh, sell to new owners, and then we property manage for them. Nice. Awesome. So I know a number of folks just through, you know, networking, recording the show and, you know, all the other stuff one does as a real estate investor who invest in Baltimore. And we were talking a bit about this 
uh, before we started recording about the really the the maybe media narrative or the perception that Baltimore has, right? It's where the wire was set. There's there's just kind of negative press. There's negative press about every city, but people probably have um, maybe misinformed or misconceptions about uh, Baltimore in general. And I mean, can you tell us about the city and then also how maybe more broadly how people can get to to learn a city in particular and where the, the good parts to invest are and then maybe the less desirable parts are from uh, an investing standpoint? Sure. So at a high level, uh, you're not wrong. Baltimore has gotten a lot of negative press uh, for a variety of reasons, um, and most of them justifiably so. But past that, there's a ton of really great things happening in Baltimore. Uh, there is a lot of huge business that's happening, a lot of major investments that are happening. And honestly, it's uh, somebody recently was talking to me and they called it like the last frontier on the coast. Uh, so being a coastal city, all of the other coastal cities have done extremely well. Uh, it is kind of like the last little brother, if you will, uh, sandwiched between D.C. and Philadelphia and New York, right along that I-95 corridor. So because of that, I think that is why there is so much investment activity happening here, not just at the residential level, but obviously commercial and industrial and really big money corporations like Amazon, UPS, FedEx, uh, Johns Hopkins, which seems to be one that everybody knows as a quasi-corporation, and several others. So beneath the surface, there is a ton of really good people here. Uh, there are a lot of jobs here, and there's just a lot going on uh, in multiple different industries. I think the back end of your question was how to learn more about Baltimore and be able to invest here. Um, you've really got to talk to the, the locals. Baltimore, if you look at it on a map, doesn't look that big, but there's a lot of nuances to it. And there's things that you just can't tell on a map. And you definitely can't tell by looking at a zip code. It's one of those cities that is block by block. So on one side of the street, you could have a great investment. And on the other side of the street, you could fall on your face. So talking to the locals in, in, that are in the industry and really learning what's the right fit for a particular investor because that's also subjective and different in what success is going to look like. That's how people are going to be successful here. Okay. Makes sense. And I think, you know, my city, Richmond, uh, we can relate to that in some ways that just looking at a map or even a zip code isn't going to give you the the real information. And if you speak with someone who lives here or invests here, you could get, you know, much more uh, useful information about, about where to invest. And I guess, how do you think about, you know, finding that right person, because I'll just, you know, relate it to my case, right? If you just spoke to somebody who has lived in Richmond for, you know, 30 or 40 years, they might not really, and, and not invest in real estate here, they might not have the most up-to-date information about the market, right? So not all information sources are, are you know, equal. So how do you find exactly. the right person to talk to? I think that's a great point because if, um, let me tread carefully in what I say here. If I called uh, my uncle who does not invest in real estate sure. and said, hey, I want to talk to you about investing in Baltimore, he might say, you're crazy. Why would yep. you do that? Like, mm -hmm. What's the point? Um, but on the other hand, if you talk to an investor that's made, I don't know, millions of dollars investing in Baltimore, they're going to have a very different perspective. And obviously, they have the experience to back it up. So you know, one of the reasons, one of the draws of Baltimore uh, related to the location and, you know, has to do with what we talked about earlier, that negative kind of perception. The positive of that is it's kept price points much more affordable. 
So that's why we have a lot of investors come out of DC and from New York that are shopping in Baltimore because it's so much more affordable than where they live or where they operate. So of course it creates a more competitive environment, but you know, that kind of is what it is. Yeah. I mean, that, that is a concern though, the, the, the price shopping. I mean, I understand, uh, certainly you're looking for a good deal. Um, again, you know, just to relate it to Richmond, we see folks coming down from Northern Virginia, shoot, they probably come across the border there of course. Uh, into Baltimore as well. Cause they see single family up there as, you know, pushing a million bucks, but down here it's much more reasonable, but the rents are correspondingly lower and they might not, you know, pick the right area. Sure. Yeah, so, sa- same concept. It, it, it definitely happens up here. One of the nice things about Baltimore, we do have a really good rent to sale price ratio. Rents are, uh, relatively speaking, h- higher here uh, than in other markets. Uh, in, in, you know, compared to the sale price over the last two years, that has stretched a little bit. The ratios are not as good as they used to be. Rents are catching back up. This year, past year, in 2021 there was a major rent price spike and, and we've seen it in, in areas that we used to rent houses for, I don't know, $1,300. They're pushing $1,500 now and all the comps are supporting it. So it is really, you know, not to get down a rabbit hole, but everything that everybody reads in the news, the inflation and just the way things are increasing in price, we're definitely seeing it in and in the rental market too. Absolutely. Yeah. hundred percent. And, you know, valuations, property taxes, all of that is, is really, uh, going flying upward. So, uh, yeah. regarding, you know, the skill set, okay, we want to, to find the right areas. We want to talk to locals who know what they're talking about, right. And, and track yes. down people who, who know what they're talking about. What other, you know, I want to talk on a, we could talk, certainly to continue to talk about Baltimore. I love that. I love that lens. I don't want to talk about, you know, skills, that turnkey investors need to have kind of regardless of, of the market they're investing in. But I think Baltimore is a very interesting, interesting case study. So what other skills come to mind from the perspective of a, a turnkey investor that they need to know before starting to, to get involved? I think they, regardless of where you're going to invest, you need to be educated enough to know what are the right questions to ask? What do I need to learn about a potential market? So regardless of if it's Baltimore or Richmond or Indiana, they need to understand the market conditions, but they also need to really understand what the relationship is going to look like with their turnkey provider and and property manager. For us, that is one and the same. We do both. But in other markets, it's not the same. You might have an investor that provides you the property, and then you're going to another company for the management. So understanding that relationship, understanding what their standards are, what are the risks involved, you know, what are the, uh, I'll say, drawbacks of the market. Um, I, I don't believe there is a perfect rental market or a perfect rental. We're talking about houses and people, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're not, none of the above is perfect. So, but it's understanding that risk and then how are we going to mitigate it in the best way possible? So, and how are we going to make sure that our interests are aligned as, as best as possible? So, if I'm a turnkey investor, that's the conversation that I want to know. Uh, and understand. Um, and of course, the details, like what are the rates and fees? What happens if XYZ happens? Just understanding all the different scenarios and how the, the company you're effectively partnering with, how are they going to handle it? That's what what I would want to know. Okay. I like that the, the, the concept of alignment of interest and making sure, you know, we're, we're on the same page here. And right. If, if, if everything performs and we, you know, both sail together, if it's not performing, then, you know, we both have an incentive to, to help it 
improve. I guess, are there any examples of ways in which interest could be, you know, misaligned specifically as it relates to a, you know, a turnkey deal, whether it's, I don't know, rents not being collected. We obviously had the eviction moratorium shoot. It could be still going on in Baltimore for all I know, you know, what about, uh, you know, things that could be aligned or, or misaligned? You know what I mean? I mean, the two biggest things for me are probably uh, one being rents and or tenant performance, and then the other being r- repairs and maintenance, especially when you first buy a house. So in our case, I mean, this is going to be my opportunity to brag a little. <laughs> That's fine. We're doing really heavy duty renovations. We're stripping homes down to the studs. We're running all new electric, all new plumbing, all new mechanicals putting them back together, it's effectively a brand new house, even though it's an old house. With that level of renovation, we have the confidence and ability that we are going to warrant that house for the first year. There are longer manufacturer warranties, but in the first year is where I hear a lot of stories from investors. Of uh, They'll say, you know, I bought a house over here, different market, different company. And you know, six months in, I ended up putting a roof on, or the water heater failed, or the furnace failed or the sewer line field, whatever it may be, substantial expenses. I've never had an investor have that. Um, Have we had a couple little incidents? We had one sewer line, I can remember off the top of my head that failed. We paid for it, we gave them a new sewer line, didn't cost the owner a dollar. Um, So we're really willing to stand behind the product. The same is true on the tenant side. When somebody buys a house from us, we place that first tenant at no charge, and then we guarantee that that tenant's gonna work out. If they move out after six months, we'll place another tenant for free. There's no charge and we'll cover the cost of the turnover. So we're really willing to put our skin in the game to say and show we believe in what we're doing. We believe in the product, in the process, and you know we're willing to pay for it if it doesn't go quite right. Historically, after the first year, we're very well stabilized. Uh, we have a really high rate of renewal. We do actually try to focus on Section 8 tenants, which historically they do stay for a long time. We get really high rates of renewal. We have over six years experience of working with that program in our market. So we're, we, we know it well. And I think uh, going back to the eviction moratorium, kind of, the, I don't think we have many Section 8 tenants in, in any of my properties, but I would figure that the Section 8 tenants were much more likely to be paid up than you know a lot of other tenants. Would you agree, disagree? What was your experience there? I completely agree. We now today have about 340 properties under management. Full disclosure, we, we actually sold 260 properties last year. We're formally under our management. So it was a higher number. And when COVID happened and when the moratoriums happened, we weren't having issues with our Section 8 tenants. The, the handful of trouble tenants that we had, they were all market tenants. And some of them, you know, had performed for years and, you know, life changes, things happen, but it took a really long time to to get them out of the house, unfortunately. So, yeah, but on the voucher side, Section 8 is also known as voucher. We might have had a case where somebody wasn't paying their water bill and, you know, that's costing us $50 to $100 a month, but that's such a small amount compared to no rent collected for six months or whatever Mm -hmm. it is. You know, does stuff like that happen? Absolutely. But again, the risk is much smaller. And that's part of what we like about the program here. Nice. So a big question uh, I would have if I were investing in a, a turnkey rental would be you know, physical due diligence. I mean, if you if you Google around about any real estate investing strategy, I don't care what it is, you're going to find sure. horror stories, right? There's, there's going to be there's situations out there where 
somebody bought a turnkey rental and the building didn't even exist, right? The person was completely <laughs> ripped off. I think off. I read that story. Yeah. Yeah. We're, no, no names of people involved, maybe litigious, yeah. but you know, Google around for yourself if you don't, don't sure. believe that. But, you know, regarding that physical due diligence, what are your thoughts about what a, a turnkey investor should do? It's just, it's just smart to do, right? But, but what should they do? Sure. Well, of course, I mean, the first thing I would always do is Google. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. Not everything you read on Google may be true, but you're going to start to at least get a picture painted. Mm -hmm. The second thing that I would ask if I was buying in another market is uh, ask for a referral or two of another owner to talk to and speak to another third-party owner and get their experience and what they liked and didn't like. And then beyond that, you always need to have a home inspection that is done by a third party. Obviously, should be licensed, needs to be licensed. And then if you're financing, your, your lender, of course, is also going to have a, a firm appraisal for you. Um, and the, the lender should also be independent. Even if they're a preferred lender, you're going to know if, if it's a reputable lender. All the lenders we recommend are pretty prevalent. They're in the turnkey space. They're recommended by many networks and, and other providers. Uh, so it's not like we have a, a lender in the back of our office cranking out files. <laughs> These guys are in a different state altogether. So you can feel that there is some separation and in, in independence there. And they have experience working with us that they can support and say, yeah, th those guys do a good job. Um, you should be able to ask them. Hopefully, whoever you're considering, they have experience with that provider already. And they can hopefully give you a good word or maybe they'll give you some caution. Hey, you, you never know, but that's, a, that's the whole point of, of asking is to see if you're going to get, you know, caution or, or you know, negative, <laughs> negative feedback. So, okay, shoot. I just forgot the question that I had. It'll come that's to okay. I was going to say that word of mouth. I mean, it really is, it still works today. You know, talking to people, just like talking to people in a market that you don't know, talking to people in this space, this turnkey space, it's a relatively small world. There's not you know, 20 turnkey providers in every market, nothing compared to that on that level. So talking to other people in the space, you're going to start to get a feel for who's doing it the right way. Nice. So uh, I think a big question that I've, I've heard people have before, and I think it's a relevant question, or a, an important question is, okay, so, you know, these are good investments. Why is the turnkey provider not keeping them as their own rentals? Why are they fixing them up and then, you know, selling them to someone else and then managing them? If they're a good deal, why don't you keep it and just, you know, own it as your own rental? What are your thoughts about that? I'm sure you've gotten that question before. Yeah. And I think it, it probably depends on, on who you're asking. So in my current personal situation, uh, my business partner is 20-ish years older than myself. Uh, he now lives in Florida and he's headed towards retirement. So together, we're not buying any more properties together. On the contrary, you know, we're working on transitioning myself to becoming majority owner of the business. So of course, there's expensive things involved in that. Uh, so right now, my focus is 100% on that, not acquiring rentals. And my partner also, again, headed towards retirement, is not looking to continue to take on more debt. Everybody's strategy is different. That being said, within a few years, I probably absolutely will be buying more rentals for myself. But there's a limit. If if we buy, we'll use last year in 2021, uh, we delivered 190 properties. I couldn't buy 190 even if I wanted to. It's just not physically possible, which is a great position to be in because as a business, we really have grown a lot. 
Um, but ultimately, you know, it's just impossible for somebody to buy that many deals or properties. So it makes sense and it just aligns well with our model and the way that we're structured. Okay. So presumably you're using some kind of shorter term, you know, in money to get the property in the first place and then do the construction and all of that. And then by bringing in an investor, you get out of that shorter term money. Obviously you make a margin. That's how businesses work. And then sure. you, know, you move on to the next one. Right? Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. So I do wonder about that shorter term money. I think I've spoken with some people, you know, offline who are more a hard money lender type of things that, that kind of get involved with that. Is that typically where that shorter term money is sourced? In our setup, we, we're very fortunate that we have a uh, really good banking relationship that was built over many years. So between the banking relationship and uh, with my partner, we're not using hard money at this point. However, I have seen hard money continue to evolve. And literally a week ago, I was talking to a local lender and they do rental financing and all kinds of stuff. But he said to me, hey, by the way, I've got a new product coming that's going to be hard money in the single digits. And I was like, oh, wow, wow, that's amazing. So I don't know how it's going to play out because we all hear that rates are about to go up this year. Mm -hmm. But it does seem that there's more money available than like ever is what it feels like. And I remember when COVID first happened, a lot of this rental money, you know, it, it dried up really quick. It was like everybody was holding on to their money and it was hard to find loans. Oh yeah. Now we're in the opposite space again. It's like it's really easy to, to borrow money right now. So I think that's why the hard money rates have gotten more competitive. But yeah. Interesting. So in in that same vein though, you know, we've still been able to, you know, find deals in the commercial world, but we're competing with other investors, right? When you're in sure. the single family space, you've got you know, owner occupants who are in there. And, and I'm actually in that space now because we're looking for a new primary residence. And it's insane. I can't, yeah. uh, you know, we're having a hard time being competitive in a property that, you know, we're going to live in. We can kind of pay top dollar. Yeah. I can't even imagine competing as an investor right now. Have you, you know, navigated the market with, with uh, the, the competition out there? Like you said, I mean, it's really, really hard. And honestly, we spend a lot of money every month marketing to try to find direct sellers. We make a conscious effort to find and build relationships with wholesalers in our market. So we might lose out on a deal to another investor that is turning around and wholesaling that deal. And we might still end up buying that house. Just costs us a little bit more. (laughs) It, It happens all the time. So wholesaling is, you know, the easiest way for people to get into real estate, you can do it with basically no money. There are a ton of wholesale deals happening, at least here, I'm sure in other markets too. It is a good way to buy properties. You don't have to do the legwork of finding that seller. And by the way, we do wholesale some properties, not a lot, but but some. And But that's how a lot of investors are running their business. They're, they're primarily wholesaling. So it's not a bad way to find properties. You can find wholesalers easily on Facebook, just join the local investment groups and You'll see wholesalers posting all the time and Google searches too, obviously. But so we do buy over 50% of our homes that we buy. We actually purchase through wholesalers. Oh, okay. Interesting. So over 50% come through wholesalers. You do your own marketing. Is your own marketing that other, you know, balance or is there kind of a split of other ways that you get properties, you know? Uh, So wholesalers, we do our own marketing. Uh, We do still work the auctions. That success is low, but we still buy deals that way. And it's minimal effort. It's all online now. So like we're driving around to the auctions. We do still pay attention to the MLS because every once in a while, a deal can be found there. 
Um, and then relationships, that's, it is definitely a key aspect. So relationships with realtors and again, wholesalers, that is a lot of times the difference between getting a deal and not. Um, so what does the relationship mean? I mean, again, for somebody that's new, the lesson there would be, you always need to uh, obviously treat people with respect and one deal is never worth burning a relationship. So respect, honesty, and you got to do what you say you're going to do. But you, if you sign a contract, you better close. We don't back out of deals, and people know that. So that gives us, you know, an extra boost in a competitive situation. Absolutely, and wholesalers, especially productive ones, they have their list of buyers, and if you burn them once, you're off that list. You are off. I've had to remove people. Never fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a fun thing. Nice. Well, on that note, right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Xander, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you yes, ready? Yes, I'm ready. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Sure. So I was thinking about this question and I didn't want to say something too cliche. <laughs> so actually, I feel that something that's had a major impact on our business, uh, especially the last couple of years, has been investing and in being in part of a mastermind. Not just a mastermind, but a real estate investing mastermind. So uh, shameless plug, Investor Fuel is the mastermind that we're a part of. It's run by a guy named Mike Hambright. It's just an awesome group. Uh, meets every quarter. Uh, they do a lot of online stuff as well. And it's just a, a one of those groups where people really open up and we learn things that people have already experimented with. So we're not reinventing the wheel every time. People are like, hey, this worked for me. Here's what to do. And we can just plug and play. And it, it really helps us advance things much quicker. So again, I'm a big believer in learning from other people. You don't have to figure everything out on your own. And you know, it's an investment, they're not free, but for me, it's, it's really been helpful. Nice, I have been in a couple of masterminds myself and the, the good ones especially really help everybody get to yes. next couple steps up in their business. So they can be fantastic investments. We had the best investment, now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Worst investment I ever made was a, uh, we'll say the house number because there's a house there now, but <laughs> Ellendale, Ellendale Drive in uh, Towson. I bought a house that had a hole in the roof, which I buy a lot of houses with holes in the roof. This hole, however, was about six or seven feet in diameter. It had rotted, the, it had been there for years. It had rotted the house all the way through. Oh. And oh, by the way, yes, the guy was still living in the house. Wow. We ended up tearing the house down and we were attempting to do new construction, which is not our niche. We know nothing about it. And unfortunately had nobody on our team experienced with it. Two years later, we sold the lot, nothing on it. And uh, we had a six figure loss on that deal. So Man. it was by far the worst investment I ever made. Had a lot of other great ones in that time. You know, thank God it didn't, wasn't our only one. It would have put us out of business. But that one hurt. That, that was a bad one. So 
I believe it, you know, I, it, it, but it, it happens. And I think some folks, you know, I appreciate that you're, you're giving us a, a, a real and honest answer. I think some folks aren't willing to, you know, admit that an investment has gone wrong and I don't care what you're doing in the real estate world, do enough deals. Yep. Eventually one's not going to go right. Unfortunately, yep. that's just the way it goes. it's going to happen. You're going to make mistakes, but yeah, that's how you learn. Got to move forward. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? I'm going to give two if that's okay. Sure. I'll be quick. Great. So one from that one I just referenced, I, I think people need to learn a niche and you can't do everything. My, uh, my operations guy always says like, don't try to boil the ocean because you can't. So you, you got in, as you grow, you can do more. But there's a reason we don't do new construction. It's just not what we're good at. We've grown our rehab business substantially, but we've never ventured into new construction because we just don't have the people for it. Directly related to that, the other biggest lesson is you know, there's a lot of challenges of real estate you know, between capital and construction and the competitive market, et cetera. But we learn this lesson time and time again. People are still our biggest asset. So you got to find good people. And unfortunately, when you don't have good people, you need to be able to move on from them. You can't hold on to people that, even if they're nice, if they're not, if they're harming your business, it's just not right. So you can try to put them in the right seat, and if, but if there's just no seat for them, you got to move on. But when you have the right people, you got to invest in them. You need to nurture that relationship, and you have to make a concerted effort because it's so easy to get sucked into working on your business all the time that you know you're, you're passing by your important people and they they'll leave if they don't feel valued. So uh, people, it, it's still a people business. You know, even if you're working virtually, you know, it makes it even harder. Uh, we really struggled with that when our office was shut down in 2020. But yeah, it's super important. Nice. Well, those problems can be worked around as long as you're aware of them and and working at them. Then you know, I think uh, that will will go a long way. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, if they want to learn about you know the types of deals that you're doing in Baltimore or turnkey investing in general, anything like that, where can they track you down? Sure. So easiest place is to start on our website, which is crofmaryland.com. Uh, you can also send an email if you're interested in turnkey directly to uh, a joint inbox that goes to myself and uh, Margaret, who runs our turnkey sales. That email is mdturnkey at crofmaryland.com. Um, again, the website, if you just Google CR of Maryland, you will find us that way too. You can submit a form through the website and we'll reach out to you quickly. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today and sharing all of this knowledge to everybody out there. Thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating interview on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, guys. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Don't forget to subscribe, subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye. Thanks, Taylor.